Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Philosophizant. Um, we have Matt Tarijos, who uh, I've been talking to, texting for a couple weeks, because he has very interesting views. Um, he's a Marxist. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. yeah. And he I would label have... myself a traditional Marxist. Traditional Marxist. And he does happen to be a distant relative of Omar Torrijos, who oversaw the transfer of the Panama Canal from U.S. US possession uh, back to Panamanian national possession. So welcome, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Roman. Mm -hmm. um, let's go back to some of the conversations we had. I just want to talk to you because like, you're a guy with very strong opinions and um, a very iconic look as well. You've got like the Soviet Union hat. <laughs> the red star yeah, hat. It's, um, it's actually a, a naval Ushanka, but right now I have the um, I have more of the cruise pin on. I usually have the officer's pin on. But. Mm. And I wanted to talk to you because I'm first of all, I was curious if um, your knowledge of the Panamanian Revolution informed your politics. Uh, but it sounds like that's more of a distant, distant factor. Is that right? Yeah, that's more of a distant factor. Actually, it didn't it didn't influence my politics at all because okay. I became a communist when I was 15 or 16. And my knowledge and understanding gradually increased. And it really picked up when I was around 17 and continued. I'm currently 20, going to be 21. So um, I actually never found out about my... Oh, wow. Distant, I never found out about my distant relative's role in um, the Panamanian Revolution, and I didn't even know what his views were or his relationship to Fidel Castro until I was already a committed Marxist when I was 18. It was wow. in 2020 during lockdown. I was just researching some of my family's history. And then I found out, like, oh, wow, this dude's you know, best friends with Castro. He has a statue in Havana. And yeah. Castro made a speech about him and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, I guess that's where I get it. I was trying to research Omar Torrijos and it was incredibly, I mean, shockingly obscure, like the information I found online. There was this one yeah. like master's thesis that's really badly written from like University of South Florida or something. Uh, and I'm surprised like it's not a mo more analyzed or a more commented on part of Latin American history. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. he was he was assassinated by the CIA yeah. for his um, revolutionary power and you know that's something that mm. the usa is currently doing you know, suppressing all the history regarding the leftist movements in south america so and well, you know they currently yeah. i'd say the u.s currently ha is in power in south america in most countries so mm -hmm. and that's and certainly on our perspective and our outlook regarding it that's something that you'll you'll see in, in official documents about what happened to omar torrijos that's something the u.s does deny but what so what uh like i guess what's but like if you, if you go down the panama if you go down the panama everybody says oh she's killed by the cia it's yeah. the word on the street down there so mm, yeah that's what i was trying to ask wow i guess if you if you do want to talk about um his revolution if you feel comfortable what, what would you say how would you classify his views because i didn't really get the sense like researching him that he was a traditional marxist he seemed much more of like he was not a traditional Marxist, and actually, I'm not going to like you know go all out defending him and his views either. Right. Even though he is a relative of mine, um, 
you know, he has a controversial legacy. For instance, right. um, he was uh, a notorious womanizer, for mm-hmm. one, and his children were disgraceful. So they certainly didn't live up to his standard in any regard. I see. Um, basically, his child, I forget what his name was, he basically became like a pawn of the United States. Mm. He was willing to work with the Yankees. Right. But, um, as far as as far as Omar Chavijos goes, um, I think he had much more leftist views. Like he was the leader of the, the Revolutionary Democratic People's Party in Panama, right? And that was aligned with the Socialist International. Um, so he did say publicly, you know, I'm not a communist. I don't, um, right. he said I'm like, I don't believe in ration books or something like that. Right. Now, you know, of course, looking at everything that was going on in South America and the subsequent assassination of Omar Trijos, it was easy to see, you know, why he was trying to publicly steer clear of being labeled a communist. Mm. Now, I personally, I don't agree with masking or hiding your views. So no. that was kind of a bad choice on his part, but. I think he was a lot more leftist than he proclaimed publicly. He was trying to appease the Americans as much as possible. Yeah, I read that he um, sort of allowed finance, even like international finance, to come into Panama, uh, especially in in Panama City. And but I also read that in terms of public services, he basically started a welfare, uh, a welfare state in Panama where you could get a publicly, you know, a public job and there were state-led industries or industries heavy, heavily controlled by state syndicates. Um, yeah, and he, so he started a, like nationalizing all the land too that was held right. by the, um, by the big farmers. You know? hmm. So yeah, I think that's one of the main things that the CIA didn't like that when he started nationalizing all the land and industries like that, he was moving towards Cuba very quickly. Interesting. And that's part of why Castro and his friendship were growing so rapidly. Yeah, I see that. I wonder if um, he's seen in sort of a similar way to Arbenz, where um, I was, t- I found some analysis that said it was more of like um, a middle-class anti-imperialist revolution rather than uh, a true Marxist revolution. So what do you think it maybe started out that way and then became? more openly Marxist, or how would you like categorize that? I think um, I think it wasn't like a Marxist revolution per se, but the uh, Panamanians definitely took inspiration from the Cuban revolution directly as like okay. kind of a textbook for what to follow, so. All right, well, that's, thank you for telling us that. Uh, now I'm very curious to look more into it, but let's talk about your views. So you said when you were 15, like sort of late teenage years, you started to become a Marxist. What were your life experiences that led to that? Or was it just intellectual curiosity that drew you to research? It wasn't actually, um, it was partly, you know, it was partly intellectual curiosity, but a lot of it was, it was informed by my moral perspective. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that um, communism was the most moral economic system. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as I began researching and reading more, I realized that the historical materialism, you know, happens outside of morality. It's just something that happens as a result of the um, technological human progression, right. you know, the needs of production amplifying themselves. So I definitely I think it still aligns with my moral views and my moral code. Yeah. But 
I have come to understand, you know, that it's something that happens outside of any one person's moral perspective. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with the five stages of history in Marxist theory. I, w- I wouldn't know that I agree with them, though, but just because human society is so complex that how could something like technological progression, even if, when it does completely change how the economy works, um, I don't know that it shows that there's like one end that the society is moving toward. Even just like thinking about the future now, I think technology could create so much more equal society or it could cause society to exacerbate its inequalities so much that um, a sort of Marxist revolution really does happen. Um, I mean, I talk a lot about technology on this show, even though it's called philosophizant, it's sort of like becoming like a futurist. Yeah, the, and a recent professor who I had on, Christian Matias, said that with computers, they'll, it actually opens the possibility for like central planning by computers in the future of the market and other technologies. I think of like the metaverse, um, more stuff with like post-humanism, people involving AI into themselves. I I just don't, I don't see how there's like any certainty in the way society is going to move into the future. There's so many possibilities for just what happens. That's true. But, um, you know, ultimately things like the metaverse and stuff like that and the advancements in technology, those are all, subject to the economic conditions of society you know like the internet infrastructure the power stations all the things that run this whole world that we're all absorbed in the world of electronics and communication that is all directly resting on the shoulders of the internet service workers the it people and the power stations you know um the maintenance workers it is all reliant on those very industrialized centers of the cities, you know, if the power goes out, the internet goes out. If the internet goes out, watch out, because people aren't going to be happy. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, at the same time that technology is changing our society, technology is more and more built on the means of production and the, mm. the labor, it is still, you know, very much subject to the labor of the workers. Now, at some point, you know, technology is going to be fully automated and we'll have a completely automated society. Right. But it's just, uh, to, to that, I'd say it's just a matter of, do we want to be the ones owning all the robots that are producing things or do we want one person to own all those robots? Because the second that they don't need us to work for them, you don't imagine that they're going to start just oh, yeah. letting us live. You know, they'll say, too bad, you know, you can't buy stuff, you're going to start to death. The human population would drastically increase and there might be, you know, a group of like... I don't know, a couple million elites that just leave after we all starved off. So that's uh, that's not going to happen. That's just, you know, like sci-fi dystopian projection because people are never going to let it get to that point, you know? But why won't? Hunger, hunger always inspires people to take drastic action, you know? And with all the revolutions I've studied, it always came down to bread. You know, when the people have no bread, that's when the spark ignites. But if one if one person owns all the machines and, and workers aren't getting paid because they're not being employed, I mean, that, that doesn't even sound like it's in the interest of like the hypothetical like capitalist class because they want workers to have like some pay so that, just so the economy can keep going. That's right. That's the, way like, oh. it, the thing is, if there's no need, 
Hmm. Like if there's no need for humans to operate machines to produce the richest right. lifestyle, then they won't care about having workers working for them. They will just let them die off and then they'll have their whole little society that runs off automation. You see? Yeah, I see. And you don't think there'd be any opportunity for just like middle class or working class people to have machines to like produce for themselves as well. The wealth. It's absolutely not because the type of machinery and the technology needed to make it a completely automated um, human production system is would be an industrial scale that no one person, mm. no one, you know, middle class person would ever be able to even assemble part of it, you know? Right. A robotic factory that produces all the needs of a, of a given society, you know, even just a small society, would be an immense scale. That makes, I've never thought of that possibility of workers. I mean, that's not something that I don't think Marx could have thought about because even Actually, though- Actually, one of the things, yeah. one of the things that he, um, one of the things that Marx pointed out was that the workers' jobs are being taken over by machinery slowly and slowly, you know, and he said that's something that's going to keep increasing, increasing as time goes on. Constant capital. So one of the, um, one of the things Marx was saying was, um, you know, the workers shouldn't be mad at the machines and they shouldn't go around trying to destroy the machines. You know, like what was happening in the 18, late 1800s, the workers were going around destroying the farm machinery because it was taking their jobs. Marx said, you know, hey, don't go around destroying the machines. Basically, go around and destroy the machine owners and make the machines work for you, to right. put it really simply. Right. But I don't, do you think he could have imagined that machines, I mean, this is possible. He was a very intelligent man that machines would be completely like self-automated. Like, I mean, I mean, he, he, he talked about machines that are like industrial machines in a factory, but that's not exactly like a fully operational robot yet. Like it's still right. made at least like one manager to put, to do the inputs, like put in the stuff. Right. New fuel. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it's possible he envisioned that and it's possible he didn't from what I've read of him or haven't read all his works, but I've read a few. From what I read, it seems like he did have a very far-sighted vision. And yeah, he probably envisioned something close to that. Maybe not totally, but very close at least. Oh wow. I not not for the not for the immediate future, but he was saying that yeah, that would happen in the foreseeable future. future. That I've got to say that really changes my view of how I view Marx now, because I think you're right. He he very well could have envisioned it. And that's just not something I thought of, because you always think that it's gonna reduce. Uh, the amount of workers needed, but then the assumption that like a lot of like economists have, and I guess I pick up this belief is that, well, that's going to create new jobs somehow, because there's always like a human need that needs to be met. But I, I think yeah. hypothetically, if right now you see even like jobs like accounting, um, all the entry level jobs that used to be like the type of job you would get out of college, even those right. are automated, even computer programming is now getting yeah, one of the things that um, the economists, they don't say when they report in the news, they say, oh, this politician created um, 100 new jobs, right? Just let's take 100. Yeah. But in creating those 100 new jobs, 300 jobs were eliminated. So the net amount of jobs is now down 200, see? And those 100 new jobs that were created are highly specialized and need like degrees, you know, like college degrees and grad school degrees to performing yeah another former friend who's a marxist um told me that he thinks like very soon the the professional class will be essentially like 
a creative class. Like if you have all technical work, all work that used to be specialized technical work being automated, then the jobs that are left for professionals that'll be left over will be like, um, you're a content producer of, of some sort, you're an actor, you're a musician. Do you see like that being a sort of like phase in the, in the long run transition of society? Um, it's a possibility. I'm not, I'm not sure. I haven't thought too much about that, honestly. He's also very interested in like selling his books. His name's JBM Patrick. So he should, so maybe that he's a little bit biased. Like he kind of wants that to be a thing, but uh, <laughs> it's an interesting thought I had. Yeah. Um, I guess like when, so when the revolution does happen and the system we have becomes so unsustainable is is there any indication of what it'll be like afterward after the revolution like i know marxist theory says there'll be no state because the state will wither away and that's one of the hardest things for me to wrap my my head around because it seems like everywhere in human life there's some interaction um that involves conflict and so without a centralized force to you know uh arbitrate immediate conflict how would how would society look like? Um, do you think that the sort of relieving people from the stress of capitalism would make it so that then like there's not really any major conflicts in society anymore, or is that something that's like not even relevant to think about yet? Well, you definitely need to think about it. I wouldn't say it's irrelevant to think yeah. about because. First of all, I know people are going to ask what kind of future you're trying to build. And then second of all, it's never a good idea to try to leave things till later to think about, you know, right. it's always good to try and plan ahead. So um, regarding what society is going to look like and the need for a state or not. So most people, I'm not sure, you, you sound like you know this, but I'm just going to say it for the benefit of the listeners. Socialism is the transition from capitalism to communism. And that is what socialism was conceived as. So this is going to be a kind of private rant. When people say, oh, I'm a social democrat or whatever, I don't believe in communism. You can't be a socialist without believing in communism or you're not a real socialist. Because, you know, as I just said, socialism is the path to communism. And what our society would look like immediately following the revolution would be a socialist transition phase, not actual communism. And that's something that everyone needs to understand going into the revolution. We are not just going to come out on the other side. Oh, communism, yay. Because, you know, the ruling class stays strong and fortified even in that country, even after the revolution. There has to be, you know, mass campaigns like the Red Terror and stuff like that to get rid of the ruling elites permanently. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's going to be, it's not going to be immediate communism right off. And there is, you know, going to be state machinery. Now, state machinery, according to Lenin in um, the state and revolutions, the state and according to Lenin, explaining Engels speaking more specifically. So really it's Engels talking. Um, the state, you know, exists to mitigate the conflict between um, the different levels of society, the ruling class and the working class, basically, and to minimize those conflicts, those class uh, contradictions to the lowest point to keep society from being constant chaos and turmoil, you know? It is still constant chaos and turmoil, but it's much less with state machinery to regulate that chaos and turmoil that mm -hmm. society can actually roll forward in some degree. Hmm. And what's so uh, we're still going to have that state machinery to mitigate that class conflict until there is only one class 
until everyone does have the same standard of living, you're going to have to have that state machinery. Okay, we're, we're going to take a break. Um, I have to deal with something and then we can continue with the conversation. Is that okay with you? Yeah. Okay. Last time we left off, um, actually, I don't remember. I don't quite remember what t- topic we were on. Mm, I remember either. Do you have the recording? I do, but I think we were at a stopping point anyway. And there's some there's some new yeah. questions I want to ask. So I actually already did have an interview uh, with someone else today from the complete opposite perspective. Um, like a conservative Christian commentator, uh, researcher with the Acton Institute, um, formerly, and now with the John Locke Institute. And I found it interesting because you've told me once that you were Christian. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about your faith, but this guy, um, I met him in a bookstore and he told me that he, his, his thing was like, um, sort of getting churches to be more economically literate. And so I told him, you know, later in the day, I'm going to have a conversation with a Marxist Christian. Is there anything you would uh, like to say in, in response to that? Can you be a Christian and a Marxist? And his response was, well, I don't think Christianity, and he said he doesn't think Christianity and Marxism can be compatible because Marxism, um, he viewed as a, as like a reductionist ideology, which like kills your soul and like makes you a slave to the state is is he said it in a more sophisticated way but that was the gist of what he said and so i'm not i'm bringing this up because i want to see if you have a chance to respond because uh in both conversations we talked a lot about core values fundamental values and you told me earlier that communism is something that aligned with your values and so i want to know how do your values as a christian align with uh, values as a Marxist. Okay, so let me give you a quote by Karl Marx. <laughs> so Karl Marx said, and I quote, religion is the opium of the people. It is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of our soulless conditions. So I would say right off the start, Marx seems to have not a hatred of religion as many people tend to believe, you know, from misconceptions and propaganda, but he actually viewed it in its as it correct in the role it correctly played in society, which was that religion is the conscience of society in many ways, despite the fact that religion has been bent to control the masses by oh. the authorities. So that's what Marx was saying when he decried religion. He was saying that the misuse of religion is a bad thing. Religion itself mm. isn't necessarily a bad thing. Right. And if religion is fake, then, and if it's if religion's fake and it's only a tool used by the ruling class to oppress the people, then once the ruling class is abolished, then religion would naturally evaporate if that's all it is. If, mm. however, it's something more like a real spiritual reality, then it would continue its existence even in communist society. So it was never something that was meant to be, you know, purposely crushed or whatever, as people think. Interesting. 
I didn't, I didn't hear that. I knew that Marx's views on religion were more nuanced than what people typically take from the quote, which is just that he doesn't like religion. But I'm yeah, they they usually they just like read the first. The, everybody just um, puts around the first part, which is uh, religion is yeah. <laughs> the opium of the people, and they don't read the other two the other two lines. Thank you. And even then, even mm. then, that's because people lack the historical context. Back then, opium was used as a drug to soothe people's pains, not like as in you know the right. negative connotations it has in modern society right. with right. our opioid crisis. It was okay. so he was actually saying it in a positive light back in that wow. context. That's, I mean, Marx was a Hegelian, so. So I don't yeah, know um, the notion of like Hegel's God, but I believe Hegel had this conception of like a totality where almost like God and man became one. And I don't, I don't actually, I don't think Marx adopted that. I don't think that's really relevant. Yeah, I don't think so. Marx. Yeah, but let's um, move on. As far as um, as far as my religion, how is that compatible with um, Marxist economics? Yeah. Well, um. I'm not sure if I can find the actual verse, but somewhere in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament of the Holy Bible, it says that, and the believers had shared all things in common. Neither did any man claim that anything that he owned was his, but they shared all things, each according as they had need, mm. which is almost, you know, a direct quote in the, that can be found in the Communist Manifesto, each according to their need, each according to their ability. And if you look and study the early church, it was actually structured in this way where everybody put their stuff together and they shared it. And if somebody needed this, somebody gave it. Right. So, you know, the property was held communally in the biblical church. So that model reflects the communist reality. And also, if you look at the way Jesus and his 12 disciples lived in communion, it says that Judas, um, when, you know, the woman poured the ointment on Jesus's feet, and, yeah. Jesus, and Judas says, why wasn't this um, ointment sold for 500 penny worth and given to the poor, right? Hmm. Well, then it says this, he said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bore what was put therein. Right. And there, right there, you see, you know, they had a communal fund for their apostleship. Everybody put their money into that bag. So, mm -hmm. you know, nobody's and nobody claimed what they had was their own. Again, that's where the early church got the example because Jesus and his... Um, and his disciples were living a uh, communal lifestyle. Mm. I didn't know that about the the, the story. I thought it was that, yeah. Those, those are just those are just two uh, two examples. I think of off the top of my head. There's a lot more nuanced, and it's definitely beyond the scope of you know just a single interview. <laughs> right. Now my second question, and this is really. The only question I have left, because I feel like we've covered so much already, is what is the role of the discipline of economics within Marxism? Because Marx himself, of course, was uh, an economist. He built on Ricardo and I believe even built on Adam Smith with the way markets work. But my understanding is he views, he views other economists as sort of like tools or... Um, if, if that's accurate, is it? And what I see in a lot of Marxist circles today is that the, the discipline of economics, like, it's like, well, that's just, it's associated, well, you're like just defending free market capitalism. You don't really see as many uh, Marxist economists who are, who, who, who reside within the discipline of economics. And then like 
Well, actually you do, but it's just not the connotation you get when you hear the word. Would you agree with that statement? Mm, I'm not sure. I think I think you with your last statement was true. It's not the connotation you get when you hear the word economist. Mm. Um, as far as economics, I think Marx, what made Marx and his writings and his theories so revolutionary was the fact that he was the first one to correctly make the connection between um, social studies and economics and that they were inter inseparably linked. Mm. which, um, you know, Marx was basically the father of social sciences, you know? Yeah. So I think, you know, being an, eco an economist is definitely, like, something good, and mm -hmm. it would be foolish of communists, and I don't know why they would, to ignore the study of economics, because the study of economics is very relevant and it's, right. you know, very real. But the thing is, the reason why, you know, you said it doesn't, it doesn't bring the connotation to mind of a communist... Right is because the modern field of economics and the way it's being taught is dominated by the right-wing capitalists and mm -hmm. they're pushing all their perspectives and their beliefs into the teaching of economics, right. which is why, you know, a lot of communists, if they do join uh, economist classes, you know, they might stay in it, but for the most part, they tend to become at odds with the teachers and the professors very quickly. Is it... What, what, do you know what it is exactly about it that that makes it that way? Is it something about the models themselves that are dishonest, or is it just how the data is interpreted? So, like the classic. It's not that it's not so much that the models are dishonest as that the this very studies and the way they gather the data themselves. It's not dishonest, but it's not. It doesn't accurately represent the the reality for the working class out there. Right. You know, like a lot of economics is studying stuff like the stock market. And I'm going to really simplify this. Basically, the stock market is just a bunch of people betting on what prices will do, which is really stupid that a lot of the economy is based off it. And then another thing is one of the ways that the Western world judges whether a country is rich or poor is how well, you know, stuff like its GDP and stuff and its stock market is doing. Well, just because a country's stock market's poor doesn't mean the people are living in poverty. It just means they're smarter than to be stupidly betting on what a volatile market that's controlled by oligarchs is going to do. Mm -hmm. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, I think the stocks. Well, it's interesting because recently that view is becoming more widely accepted, actually. Or there's more evidence to back that view because you have stocks that are like meme stocks now, which it used to be okay. the bubble where there's a price, um, you know, that this stock has uh, based on its earnings and you wanted to buy like a price earning ratio of less than 15 or something. So you're not overpaying for the stock. But now it's much more, I think it's moving toward a direction where it is much more governed by like what you said, a speculative nature. Mm-hmm. And the Federal Reserve, although um, one thing I discussed with the, the previous person I had on, Ray Nothstein, was that he was saying, well, historically, the stock market has really outpaced, um, how was it, what did he say? So he was referring to a, uh, an idea to, um, to allow citizens to use part of their social security money or residents to use part of their social security money to invest in the stock market 
um, to save for retirement. Because his argument was that even though there's there's short-term fluctuations in the market, if you had had money in the market for like 90 years, for example, like the long-term trend in the market is that it grows. And so it's it's hard to say how much of it is you know influenced by real wealth. It's like a chicken or the egg. It's like, did the stock allow um, the company to actually grow? Or was it... Uh, the company was uh, valuable, so the stock yeah, grew. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing, that there, where is the line drawn? In a lot of cases, there is no line, and that's intentional. Mm. I see. And also, another thing I mentioned is with like the Federal Reserve now, one of the things they do is um, actually directly buying a lot of corporate debt, which is um something new and i definitely view that in unfavorable way because it's only large publicly traded companies that decide to like go sell themselves on the stock exchange that can do that and i think that'll like increase inequality and it, the federal reserve doesn't really have this was on a cnbc video where the cnbc presenter actually stated hey the federal reserve doesn't have tools to help like small businesses this is for another thing that's wrong with the federal reserve buying yeah. and the big corporation stocks like that is that let's say the company commits some labor violation, right? Right. Now the government has an interest in not seeing that company go down. Mm. So basically, if the, the more the color yeah. of the company is invested in the government to a certain point, you know, basically the more protection yeah. they have. So that's like yeah. another potential oh, avenue yeah. for corruption. I completely, that's basically how the 2008 financial crisis happened. The government yeah. was, you know, like, the Federal Reserve System was instead of regulating the investment banks, kind of just hand in hand with them, uh, allowing them, giving them credit, even though they knew they were pushing up a speculative asset. Um, and actually, in 1996, I believe, uh, you know, the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, right? How like you're when you put your money in a bank, it's not like you're going to lose the money if that bank goes under. It's federally insured. Well, sometime in the 90s, that. Um, law changed in a way that allowed the FDIC to actually insure investment banks, or it blurred the legal distinction between commercial banks that a normal person would put their money into and investment banks, which do riskier operations. And so I've seen an argument that because of that change in the system, which happened under Bill Clinton, that that allowed incentivized investment banks to take way bigger risks because they knew like the profits will be private, but if there's losses, those can get publicized. I, yeah. That's my, because that's kind of my focus. Um, like as a political science economics student right now. Um, well, well, my technically my focus is something different, but yeah, I'm very interested in like the learning about the finance system, the Federal Reserve System. Um, let me see. I feel like I should ask you one more question because I just went on a, okay. a huge tangent there. So I, I want to give you the time to speak. Yeah. Um, actually, I was wondering about something in Marx's equation um, of the labor theory of value. Because now with the digital age, and this is going back to the technology theme, if the, the value of labor I mean, yeah, if the value of labor is what determines the value of a product, what do you think Marx would make of products that can be digitally reprodu reproduced or uh, things of value like a song, but it's like intellectual property. So it doesn't, 
It might require some little electricity to reproduce, but instead you have um, basically computers reproducing it automatically. And so I wonder how would that fit in with a Marxist theory of the labor theory of value, if you know. Basically, you know, you said computers are reproducing it, right? Yeah. So the easier something becomes to manufacture, the less valuable it becomes. Mm -hmm. And that is the whole premise of the communist system, that capitalism has created the conditions for communism, meaning that capitalism has made things so abundant and the capitalist advances have made, you know, technological advances Mm -hmm. have made products so easy to manufacture that they are now worth nothing. They're not worth nothing. They're still valuable, but like, we can produce so much of it, there's never going to be an end of it. You know what I mean? Like if you go down the street and you see all the cars sitting, the new cars sitting in the car lots, we can produce more cars than are needed for humanity. So right there, the cars are worthless. You get what I'm saying? There's a car for everyone, so to speak. And you know, it's the same thing with um, digital commodities. You know, those are easy to produce. So a value would go down. But why? Which is why everything is free. Hmm. But why would that, if that's the case, so why, why does that not work for commodities that people really need, like food, rent? Um, because people are the people who are manufacturing the foods are destroying yeah. the food source to keep the price up. Like in Idaho, the potato farmers, they're just dumping yeah, thousands of tons that. of potatoes to keep the price of potatoes up. The same thing with the dairy farmers, they're dumping milk. And that happens in all the food industries mm-hmm. that they're destroying food to keep the price up. Because if they actually put all that abundance in the market, it would There's literally no- be sold for less than pennies. Exactly. And that was the premise of communism, that there's so much abundance in capitalism. It's just being hoarded. But if it was actually put out there, people would be living a great standard of living and it would usher in communism. Mm-hmm. I have no response to that. So if there's anything else you well, want... That was a really simplified explanation, yeah. but, you know. No, I, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Um, if there's anything else you want to say to the audience, I've got no more questions. Hmm. Um, I can't think of anything personally, but um, hmm. well, what I do have a question for you though. What what is your audience like mostly? You know. Um. Yeah. I mean, the only statistics I look at are the anchor statistics. It's not. I'm not like a huge podcast or anything, but hopefully this project grows. Um, and I think especially. Uh, as I meet new people. It's a way for me to really learn from everyone I meet. Uh, either sometimes that means I invite them on to the as, to the podcast as a guest, like you. Um, other times, uh, it, it specifically pertains to one of my research goals or something the campaign I I, I did work for was doing. Um, I mean, it's not a, it's not a great audience. It's not a huge audience to be honest. But I think I think it'll grow. Just sort of like a long term project gotcha. that's cool and um what would you what, what are your personal um economic views you know briefly right recently i started calling myself a post leftist because i'm very skeptical i'm an egalitarian at heart but you know i, I look at cases where progressive policies that are intended to make society more equitable can end up backfiring and i feel like progressives they, they don't acknowledge 
uh, sufficiently when policies backfire. For example, in California, there's one environmental law that's intended to protect areas of environmental importance, but 70 and 80% of the time, this law is weaponized by homeowners groups who want to stop new construction and keep the, keep the rent high. And so it's mm-hmm. things like that. And also the lack of criticism toward the Federal Reserve. Recently, I, I read an article about the Marxist critique of modern monetary theory. And I can send you this if you like, because it, it describes how well, yeah, you could use unlimited currency creation to power economic growth, but then that, that has to be paid back because that's made by selling bonds. And then that's a whole class of investors that just lives on bonds. And so with the, the lack of, um, it's hard, it's very hard for me to categorize myself on the American political spectrum. Maybe I'd be winning on the international spectrum. Um, but yeah, lately my, my viewpoint has been specifically on American economic policy and there's not a lot I like. I used to be more of uh, like an international relations person. Uh, I studied that for a while and it's just too complex to understand. I just don't want to like, I don't know. I feel like it makes, makes me go crazy to, to uh, be a special yeah. on that topic. Yeah. yeah. I still talk to people who do study it though. All right. All right. It was a real pleasure speaking to you. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed my time on the podcast. Okay. See you, Matthew. This is right. uh, Matthew Rijos, and this is Philosophisms. <laughs>